John chapter 12, if you have your Bible, we're going to begin reading at verse 1. Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Then saith one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him, Why was not this ointment sold for three hundred pence and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief, and had the bag, and bare what was put therein. Then said Jesus, Let her alone. Against the day of my burying hath she kept this. For the poor always ye have with you, but me ye have not always." Much people of the Jews therefore knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus also, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death, because that by reason of him many of the Jews went away and believed on Jesus. On the next day, much people that were come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. And Jesus, when he had found the young ass, sat thereon, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, thy king cometh, sending on an ass's coat. On that last line there, verse 15, we in this generation, I believe, and if not, certainly it's very, very close, we're going to see Christ return. This time not as humble and lowly as we see him here on this Palm Sunday. This time he's going to return in glory and in power. There will be people all over the world saying, hide us from the face of the Lamb. If you look with me at the very first verse of chapter 12 at verse 1, I took for the title of this message some of the words that are there in the first passage. Six days before the Passover. It occurred to me that I could speak to you of most notably the work of Sir Robert Anderson, who years ago calculated the time from the decree that was given, this is Daniel's prophecy, to the time that Jesus entered Jerusalem, that it was right to the exact day. And we've talked about that over the years. But as I was meditating in this portion of scripture and thinking about what to say, it occurred to me very strongly to give you some practical applications for Palm Sunday. So this message really has a subtitle, Six Days Before the Passover. If I wrote out the whole title, it would be Practical Applications for Palm Sunday. So in other words, we're celebrating all over the world Palm Sunday. Many good things will be said. Many things that are true will be said. The palms being put on the ground as Jesus rides on this cold and applications to that. But what I saw and want you to see is what happens the week before some of the events. Now, I'm not going to go through all of the events, but during this, what is called Holy Week or the end for some of Lent, we have many events. And at the end of the week, towards the end of the week, we have Judas' betrayal, Judas hanging himself, Jesus saying it would have been better if that man had never been born than to betray me the way he did. And we'll talk about him today. 
We have Jesus standing trial. More than one time, he stood before the Sanhedrin, he stood before Pilate, before Herod, and we have all of these things, some of which we'll talk about Friday evening of this coming week. But what I want to share with you today is some things that are not precisely written in the text, but things that we could draw out of the text based on what the scriptures say and human nature about other things. First of all, in verse 1, it says, Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. If you would just turn your Bible back just one chapter, we'll see. Lazarus has two sisters, Martha and Mary. Jesus is in Jerusalem when Lazarus is sick, and they call for him to come while Lazarus is sick, and Jesus doesn't come right away. And he's healing and he's teaching and doing things. And then four days pass by before he finally says to the disciples, let us go to Bethany. That's where we see him here in chapter 12. And that's where he'll be most of this holy week in Bethany. Traveling back and forth to Jerusalem, then one last trip to Jerusalem. Anyway, he comes to Bethany and the first one to meet him is Martha, whom we're going to see in just a moment. And she says to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She was disappointed in Jesus, as I suppose many Christians are at times. Right behind Martha comes Mary, and she also is saying to Jesus the same exact thing. If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. This represents, in my mind, the idea that God didn't hear my prayers, God didn't answer my prayers. Let's straighten something out right now. God does not always answer your prayers your way. And we'll see a little quote here I have for you later about that. God answers according to his will. Now his will is expressed in the Bible, so we know that he's a healer and all of these things. But we have a tendency to view God from our point of view, not from his. Our timetable from our point of view, not his, and so on. And so Jesus announces as he's going to the tomb, walking toward the tomb of Lazarus, that he's going to rise again. And Martha says, I know he's going to rise again. I've been to Sunday school. I've been through the teachings. I've been through the doctrines. I know that on the last day he's going to rise again. I believe in that. And Jesus says, no. Look with me if you went back to John chapter 11, verse 25. What a great verse. What a powerful verse. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. That would be Lazarus. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. And that would be you and me. Thank you. <laughs> and there's the question. Believest thou this? If more people actually believe this, all our churches would be filled all around the world. Those that profess to be Christians. But let me just say to you candidly, they don't. Christians in theory will believe that God answers prayer. But when it's not precisely the way they wanted it. They give up, and in a sense, what they do is blame God. You just take it from there. The first thing I want to tell you today as a practical application about the six days before Passover, we know there's going to be a crucifixion, a burial, and a resurrection, that Jesus himself is the resurrection. I read again, I'm reading this more and more often as we move towards the apostasy that we're in right now in the church, and of course, whatever's outside the church, how the universe is speaking to me. I'm seeing this more and more. The only thing the universe ever says to me is that the heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament declareth his handiwork. That's it. That's the only thing the heavens have ever said to me. I know there's radio waves coming from outer space and stars put off a kind of a musical tone, I've been told. But that's the only thing the universe says to me. 
It's God who created the universe. And Jesus is not saying, I have power from the universe to raise people from the dead. He's saying, I'm the resurrection. I'm the creator. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And we go through the passages where Jesus makes mention of his eternal nature. And then we get into the doctrine of the Trinity. Six days before the Passover, Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. That's the first thing I want you to understand. Jesus doesn't give resurrection. Jesus is the resurrection. When he uses all those statements, the I am statements, he doesn't give light. He says, I am the light. He doesn't just give bread. I am the bread. I am the way. I am the truth. And so on. We give things because we have no power to do things ex nihil. We can't create nothing. We reproduce from what is created and we can mix things as chemists do and so on. But we cannot create from nothing. But God created ex nihil out of nothing. And he spoke and his word stood fast. He spoke from nothing. There was nothing. And God said, let there be stars, let there be planets, let there be animals, oceans. And finally, he said, let there be man. And let us create him in our image. And this is our God right here. He didn't merely raise Lazarus from the dead, who was dead for four days. He said, I am the resurrection. In another place, Jesus goes on to say, the Father has given me power to lay my life down. I have the power to lay it down on a Roman cross. We'll talk about that Friday and how brutal it is, or was. And I have power to take it back up again. No philosopher ever said things like that. You want to know who I am? Kill me. And in three days, I'll raise myself back up again. You remember the, the magician Houdini? He vowed that if there was a way to come back from eternity, he would find it and he would be here. And as far as I know, he hasn't been successful. But Jesus was. But Jesus is. Jesus said, I have power to lay my life down. I have the power to lay it down. And I have the power to take it back up again. And he did. Jesus is the resurrection. Now, let's go to verse 2. And so as he's in the house of Mary and Martha, or Martha and Mary and Lazarus, they made him a supper. There they made him a supper. And Martha served but Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Let's go to verse 3 so we just get the picture all at once. I then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Let's take a look at Martha, Lazarus, and Mary. Now, you recall the story when Jesus came to their house. Martha, it says, was cumbered with much serving. The text of Jesus being in the house gently reproves Martha for her nervousness and her obsessive compulsion. You know, she was a good hostess. and She was working in her gift, as I'll mention in a moment. But Jesus did not approve of it when she complained against her sister Mary, who was sitting there doing nothing but reading the Bible, listening to Jesus. It's astonishing the things preachers can say. I heard preachers say, we need more Marthas in the church. And I'm going to make the argument, we do not need more Marthas in the church. And I'll tell you why. Because Martha was working in her gift without the anointing. She wasn't anointed. I'm not saying she didn't belong to Jesus. I'm just saying she was going beyond the bounds of her gifts. She had a real gift for giving, for hospitality, or what the Bible calls the gift of helps. But she was out of bounds. She took her gifts out of bounds. She made her gift into a nervous condition. 
I'm not diagnosing her as obsessive compulsive. I'm just giving you something that you can relate to. Just nervous when she complained to Jesus. Don't you care about me? I went through this on Wednesday night, and I'm not going to accent it too much now, but people with nervous conditions, which I told you, I've studied it for 50 years. I said, I have a daily show. I do, but I haven't done it in a couple of weeks. I will be getting back to it. So obviously I care about people with anxiety and panic and depression. But when you make this into some type of exalted position, there's nothing really to brag about that you're fearful. There's nothing to brag about when you're nervous. It should, as I mentioned also Wednesday, should be a bit humiliating, or at least humility. But in a lot of people, they kind of just go around grousing about it all the time. That doesn't help. Anyway, Martha is serving. And we know from the story, as it's related in another passage, we know that Martha was cumbered. She was worried. She was concerned that the guests have enough. Everybody got enough to drink and eat. And then she gets so worked up, which, by the way, does go with nervous symptoms. People working themselves up and working themselves up in their heads. And then maybe it comes out of their mouths or whatever. She finally goes to Jesus. She says, don't you care about me? And Jesus didn't say, oh, you know, of course I care about you. Let's sit and talk. Jesus has a way about him, if you read through the New Testament, being very direct without being rude. Well, in some cases, he was mad, like the 23rd chapter of Matthew. That happened during Holy Week as well, on Thursday. He excoriated the Pharisees and the Sadducees. In any case... Jesus mildly reproved Martha because she was serving in her gift without the anointing. And we could talk about applications for you and for me, for everybody. When you're in your gift, but you're out there without the touch of the Holy Spirit being upon you. But let's just stick with what we know of this incident. We know that Martha was burdened by the gift of helps that God had given to her. And she became obsessed with it and it was compulsive. Hey, parents, let me give you a little help here. There is an ideology that's been around for decades now. Good children, good parents. Bad children, bad parents. I want to relieve you of this. All have sinned. All children have sinned. All adults have sinned. And this nature and nurture which counts more, well, I'll stick with the Bible. There's sin. David said, I was born in sin. And so it's not always so cut and dried. So you don't have to obsess about everything or lay in bed at night wondering what you did wrong. No doubt you've done things wrong as parents. We all have. But then in this generation that's being encouraged, this is a true story too. Kids going to a high school counselor with their lawyer. Now I know of one case. When I heard of it, I was astonished. My principal used to say, get your butt over here. But he didn't use the word butt. But I say, can I get my lawyer? That's the time we live in. That's the generation we live in. I don't like it. I don't like it. I really don't like it. But I'm saying that there are people who are in their gift, they could be preachers, they could be whatever, that have gone beyond the anointing into a place of nervousness and a constant worry about things. And I think a lot has been put on parents today because of the behavior of the kids. They say, well, it must be something wrong at home. Possibly. And sometimes there is. Remember, my business is counseling people. But basically, it boils down to this. Everybody's responsible for their own lives. I've met people who had really horrible parents and turned out to be wonderful people and vice versa. Anyway, Martha is a nervous wreck and she's ministering without the anointing and that's not what you want to do. You see, here's the thing. Jesus was able to say at the end of his life, Father, I have finished the work that you gave me to do. You realize, and some of you know from experience, as a pastor, I've had many complaints. 
thankfully they weren't on my moral condition or ethics or the Bible. It's just that, you know, well, where's the love and all that stuff? And I do love people. I, I honestly do. I actually like people, most people. Some people. <laughs> but if there's something wrong, it's got to be the pastor. Couldn't possibly be you. That's impossible that it's you. Got to be him. Just like Jesus in John 6, 6, 6, when it says that many of his disciples walk with him no more, had to be his problem. And it wasn't his problem. And that's human nature. You don't want to be a Martha who, as a Christian, who is beyond the anointing, out from underneath the anointing, and you're doing it on your own. That's why it doesn't work. Jesus, as I just mentioned, said at the end of his life, I finished the work that you gave me to do. All right, let's take a look now at Lazarus. Now, I thought when I looked at this text here, especially in our culture, isn't this typical? Martha is serving and Lazarus is sitting down eating. And in my generation, um, well, forgive me, in my generation, certainly my mom's generation, my parents' generation, it was men's job and women's jobs. Now, you know, someone's going to get upset, but I'm not going to try to upset you. I'm just trying to say that's how it was when I grew up. You know, women had a job. I watched an old movie, a Doris Day movie, not that long ago with Rock Hudson, you know, where he was going to help her with the dishes. And she says, no, 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 don't do bother. That's a woman's job. I said, wow, that's 1959. That's not today. So I thought of this. Lazarus, there he is, doing something that is not, we're going to see it in a minute. He's doing something very important. What's he doing? He's testifying to what miracle Jesus did in his life. And that's important. If he was running around the house like Martha, he wouldn't be able to speak with the guests and all of this here. Not a whole lot to say about Lazarus, except that he's testifying of his Lord. At least I would assume that based on what we're going to read and we have read when we came through the passage. Now Mary, she's so appreciative, as we should be, of what Jesus has done and meant to her as she breaks this very expensive jar of perfume and is anointing Jesus' feet, as you know, that was the custom of the guests, or excuse me, of the host, to wash the feet of the guests. Jesus talks about that also. I came into your house, you didn't even wash my feet. That was customary. And she had to have long hair. And she's wiping off her tears with her hair. And the whole house is filled with this aromatic fragrance. And Jesus uses this to say, this is for my death. She saved this for my death. And then he says something curious. He says, you're always going to have the poor with you, but you won't always have me with you. That's the physical presence of Jesus. You'll always have the poor with you, but you won't always have me with you. Let me say to you this here. Mary was not just a hearer of the word. We know that she was sitting at Jesus' feet when Martha made the complaint. Don't you care about me? Look at my sister. What's she doing? She's sitting there listening to you. She should be serving. She should be working. To put it in the modern parlance, I'm the only one that does anything around here. What are you doing? I'm reading the Bible. I'm going to say something to you. Do you know what my job is? I mean, it took me years to figure out. Do you know what my job is? It's to be an expert in the Bible. Well, you know, he didn't show up here and he didn't show up there. Well, here's some bad news. I'm going to be showing up even less as I get older. But I'll be in this book even more. Because that's what I'm called to do. That's what a preacher is called to do. Otherwise, I wouldn't have the name preacher. What if you ask for a carpenter and a plumber shows up? He's not supposed to be a plumber. He's supposed to be a carpenter. When you say, I'm a preacher, you're supposed to be a preacher. You're supposed to know the book and a lot that goes with it, which, believe me, is very tiring and very exhausting. In any case, Lazarus is doing what he's supposed to do. And Mary is not just a hearer. She's a doer. And that's what you're supposed to be. 
as I spoke to you just recently about called to be saints. It isn't just that saint and that saint and the statue over here. It's all of us. There are no exceptions. We say, I'm weak. No exception. That's an excuse. That's just an excuse. There's stronger Christians and there's weaker Christians. And we're supposed to help each other. But you can't use, oh, I'm kind of weak, you know. Overcome. That's what Jesus said. Overcome. All the seven churches of the book of the Revelation Overcome to him that overcomes, overcome. That's not just for some Christians, that's for everybody who professes Christ. Overcome it. Oh, by the way, Lazarus was intimate with Jesus by experience. And that's what you want. It's great that you go to church, and you should. It's great that you go to the children's church, Sunday school, whatever, and that's great. But you want to know Jesus by experience. You want to see him answer prayers in your life. And when you do, it will build your confidence. You won't have to go around with the long face all the time. He didn't show up. I tried praying. Don't ever talk to me like that. Because it really gets to me. Because i got 45 years in this business. And I've watched God come through time. Has he tested me? Much more than he's tested most of you. He tests me. But he's never failed me. Never. 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 And you know what I expect in the future? Things are going to go crazy. The world is crazy. It's going to get worse. But Jesus has never failed me and he'll never fail you. You want to be intimate with Jesus by experience, not just by theory. You don't want to just have all these nice verses all over your house. I'm not saying you shouldn't have them. We have them. That's great. But you want to be able to know him. I have known whom I have believed, the Apostle Paul said. I have known him. Not just known the word because the Apostle Paul was a Pharisee. He knew the scriptures. He said, I have known him. I've known him. We're celebrating next week the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is alive, alive, alive forevermore. You want to be like Lazarus and experience Jesus by knowing him intimately. And that can only come, as I mentioned last week, by obedience. Come with me now. Down at verse 4, after we see that Mary breaks this perfume and there's all this, well, drama's not the right word, but it is pretty dramatic. It's pretty moving what Mary has done. And Judas steps forward. He's on the board. Now, there's no intentional disrespect to the two elders that are here. But I've sat on a lot of boards. And there were some good, you know, men on the boards and what have you. But, man, I'll tell you what. They can cause you more problems. When we started Time for Truth here 16 years ago, the idea was simplicity. Keep it simple. Jesus, the Holy Spirit, prayer. We don't even have official membership. Why? You make them members, you have a big thing, you give them flowers and all that stuff, then they go, then they leave. We haven't had a church, what do you call it, a directory with pictures. You have a photographer shows up, takes all these pictures. By the time you get the book, the people are already gone. You're scratching out their names. Done with that too. I, I don't know about you, I signed on for Jesus. Not for all this rigmarole and all this stuff. So if you're born again, you're a member of the body of Christ, that's good enough for Pastor Ray. That's good enough for me. And so now, Martha is serving without the anointing, as I just mentioned. I'm going to get to Judas here, but I just want to give you a quote like I did last week from A.W. Tozer's book, Knowledge of the Holy. I want you to listen to what he says here. Tozer said, and he writes in his book, Knowledge of the Holy, Left to ourselves, we tend immediately to reduce God to manageable terms. We want to get him where we can use him. And this was written again in 1961 or at least know where he is when we need him. We want a God we can in some measure control. I remember a Bible student telling me that his teacher, in writing her notes, actually had her notes and then had in some kind of parenthetical statement, Holy Spirit, move here. Who talks like that? Who teaches like that? 
How do I know when the Holy Spirit's going to touch somebody? I don't. I pray a lot that he'll do it, you know, while I'm preaching and teaching, but you don't put in there, Holy Spirit, move here. That's what Tozer's talking about. We want a God we can in some measure control. We need the feeling of security that comes from knowing what God is like. And what he is like is, of course, a composite. Listen, of all the religious pictures we have seen, all the best people we have known or heard about, and all the sublime ideas we have entertained. If all of this sounds strange to modern ears, it is only because we have for a full half century. That's 1961. So it's more than a century now. We've taken God for granted. The glory of God has not been revealed to this generation of men. The God of contemporary Christianity is only slightly superior to the gods of Greece and Rome, if indeed he is not actually inferior to them, in that he is weak and helpless, while they at least had power. You want to know God by intimacy. You want to know God by experience. You want to be able to say, as Job said, I know my Redeemer lives. Yeah, you read about it first. But you want to be able to say, I know my Redeemer lives. Judas, verse 4, then sent one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him. Verse 5, why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief, had the bag and bear what was put therein. One of the biggest fights I ever saw at a board meeting was a discussion that came up, and I didn't bring it up. One of the board members brought it up, saying, Pastor, you know, you haven't had a raise in a long time, and uh, you know, let's do it. And I said, well, let's do this. Let's get two people from the congregation and have them do the survey so there's no, like, bias here. Like, I'm telling you, I didn't even ask for the raise because I've always trusted that God would take care of me, and he has. In any case, they did their research. They did their homework. They showed up for the meeting, and it was Unbelievable. One board member went ballistic. He talked about the economy. He talked about things are going down, and we're talking about a raise, and I was astonished. First of all, I didn't ask for it. When I signed on many long years ago, I trusted God to take care of me and my family, and he has, and he will. Not that I wasn't appreciative of their gesture. He caused such a problem. I'm just simply saying that now we've had Martha, and we've had Mary, and we've had Lazarus, and now we have Judas. He didn't care for the poor. That was a pretense. We have many people in churches today in positions of authority who don't care one whit about the poor or anybody else. It's a pretense for their own avarice. Or in Judah's case, he was a thief. There's a man in Korea now, the world's largest church. It's in the Guinness Book of World Records, who's in prison for that very thing. Yeah, the world's largest church, world record, Guinness Book of World Records. And he's in prison, or at least he was, for that very thing taking funds and mismanaging funds and putting it in his own pocket. It's a thief. He's a thief. That's all. I mean, he stole money. He's a thief. And Judas was a thief. And that's not a place where you want to be because the end of his life was not good. Jesus said of Judas, it would have been better had he never been born. It would have been better that he never knew the things that he knew or saw the things that he saw and learned, you know, when he finally betrayed Jesus. And Jesus knew it from the beginning. That leads us to another mystery. But Judas, in one sense, was born to betray Jesus because that's what was going to be the end of his life. Let me say something to you now as an application. That's what this message is all about. What you want to make sure is that you are not a Judas. Oh, I meet them. They say, oh, well, you know, Pastor, I still love the Lord and all that. But you look at their lives. It's not even close to what it used to be. Like Peter, who followed him far off, but at least he wasn't an apostate. And he had a moment there, but he wasn't an apostate. Judas was an apostate. Judas sold out Jesus. 
There are many people today that are selling out Jesus. Many of them are preachers. They're selling out the gospel. Some are doing it for money. Some are doing it because they want to save face. Some want to just be popular, whatever their goal is. But it's not to glorify Jesus. The only way we can glorify Jesus is to lift him up the way he's written in this book. Judas did not want that. The rest of the 11 did. And they paid a price for it too. You don't want to end your life as a Judas. You don't want to have started out well and then in a position where you actually are selling Jesus out. Well, you can go and research this further for yourself as to what your opinion is on whoever you read, but there's quite a lot of that happening now. Judas, born to betray, not in a literal sense, but that's how his life ended. And how did he end his life after he sold out Jesus? The Bible says he hung himself, but it also says his bowels gushed out. So more than likely what he did is he impaled himself, and then he hung there. I remember hearing the story of a man who was up on a building in New York City and he kept threatening to jump and you know how cruel people can be. The crowd down there was saying, oh, jump, 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 you know, really, really, really bad. And finally he did. And there was an old man there, an old Christian man. And he thought of it in these terms. He says, well, he says, when you don't have God, I guess there's nothing left to do but jump. We've talked about hell. You so allow Jesus, what else is there to do but to hang yourself? This is not good. It would have been better for that man had he not been born. So you think it's a big deal to spend a couple of hours, two hours in church? We spent two hours in the prayer meeting, if you count that in. That's a big deal to spend with Jesus in church, with fellowship with Christians. But we should sell him out by saying, we'll get you in and out, in and out, in and out. This is not a car wash. We're talking about eternity. We're talking about entering into eternity. We're talking about the need, especially with all of the stuff that's coming at us. We have little things on the kitchen there that's talking to us and the phone is talking to us while the TV is running and all this stuff makes me confused. That's too much input. My brain is not that complex. I like it simple and I like it quiet. It's eternity we're talking about. It's Jesus Christ. Make sure that you stay on that straight and narrow. And then verse 9. No, verse 7. Let me go to verse 7. Let her alone. Leave her alone. I like that. That's when someone stronger than the bully comes in and says, hey, leave him alone. Or father comes in and mother, leave him alone. That's what Jesus said. He defended her. Let me give you some advice from a lot of situations I've been in. I could have defended myself, made big statements, you know. Said, you know what? Let God defend me. I actually challenged a couple of people. Go ahead. I'm going to do this. I had that happen to me just last week. Somebody said, I'm going to expose you. I said, go ahead. And you know why? I'm not afraid to be exposed. I got nothing to hide. You go ahead and expose me. Go ahead and do it. You do it. Man told me he was going to go on and start a show just to expose me. And they would ban me from it so I couldn't hear it and see it. Well, you just go ahead. I didn't tell him to go ahead. I didn't say anything. I didn't even answer him. You go ahead. God is my defense. God is my shield. If I'm guilty, I'd be the first person to be up here saying, I did it. Forgive me. I'm sorry. Because that's what Christians are supposed to do. But if you have nothing to be concerned about and what you're doing is serving God with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength, let people do what they want. Because God will come to your defense. God is your strong tower. God is your refuge. Let God do it. And the joy, as I have told you, I enjoy a supernatural indifference to what people think of me as long as I know my conscience is clear. I went to say hi to a guy yesterday. He's always hugging people and, hey, goomba, and all this stuff. And then when I say hi to him, I'm like, hey, good morning. Hey. 
I keep wondering, I mean, it does get got me curious, like, what did I do to this guy? I don't recall that I did anything. But you know what? I'm not losing sleep about it. That's not my problem. And I'll see him again tomorrow, and I'll say, hey, good morning. And he'll probably say, eh, a grunt or something. I don't know what his problem is. I barely know the guy. I don't know what his problem is, but I'll tell you this much. I enjoy a supernatural indifference to people and what they think or feel about me because my conscience is clean. I'm not saying I'm perfect. I didn't just say I was sinless. I'm just saying my conscience is clean. And when it's not, I try to get it right so that my conscience can be clean and I can walk around and I can put my head on the pillow at night and not be concerned about someone's going to expose me. Go ahead. I have a picnic. She did what was right. Judas was a pretense. Why did this happen? Why was this not so for the poor? Because she was taking money out of the bag. And Jesus simply says, let her alone. David prays this way. All the saints of God pray this way. God, be my defense. Look at this here. Verse 9. Much people of the Jews therefore knew that he was there in Bethany. And they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus also, whom he had raised from the dead. Now that's a testimony. If you could have a church, let's say a church meeting, where people are coming not only to see and hear Jesus, but to meet real Christians. To see, you know, the love of God and everything else that's written in the book. That's something. These people came not only to see Jesus, they wanted to see Lazarus. Remember he was bound? Remember the story? Right? He's embalmed, but not like the way we embalm. He's wrapped. When he's coming out of the grave, he's coming out like this. I do think, I should say, in my mind, that no one was probably more shocked at the event than Lazarus. He's like, what happened? What happened? The last I knew it was coughing, I had a fever. <laughs> now, it's like, and everybody's like, ah, you know. <laughs> they were coming not only to see Jesus, they were coming to see Lazarus to say, did it really happen? How many, how many of you have a testimony, you have a story? We all got stories. Everybody's got a story. I got a story. We all got stories. Look, someone said this to me, and I'm not trying to use self-aggrandizement here, or give myself a left-handed compliment. I'm just telling you a story. I was on a phone interview a couple of years ago with a radio station. We were doing business with the time, broadcast overseas. They wanted to do an interview with me. We got talking on the phone and asking questions and answering questions. When we hung up, we were still on the phone with the woman that ran the station. And she said to me, she said, no, Pastor Ray, you really are the real deal. I said, well, I try to be. I'm not a perfect man, um, but I try to be the real deal. I really do. But here's the thing. If you're the real deal... Or as Wesley said, it's attributed to John Wesley, set yourself on fire and people will come and watch you burn. Yeah, you'll be the weirdo in the house. You'll be the weirdo at the family gathering, but so what? As I've told you so many times, you say, what are they going to say behind my back? Here's a real clue and a revelation. They're already talking about you behind your back. Give them something to talk about. And did you see him sitting there? Quoting Bible verses? That makes me feel good. Because they're talking about me behind my back anyway. They're talking about you behind your back. Are you too obtuse? Because I didn't want to say stupid. Are you too obtuse to not know they're already talking about you behind your back? I didn't like the way she has her furniture. I didn't like the way she does her house. Oh, did you see the shoes you had on? So give them something substantial. Jesus. Give them something substantial. Give them something to really bite on. Because they're going to talk about you anyway. But here's the point. If you're the real deal, they're going to talk about you. If that bothers you, 
Well, it shouldn't bother you because Jesus said, whoever is ashamed of me in this perverse, adulterous generation, I will be ashamed of him in eternity and glory when the angels come. So I say, fair enough. Do you know Jesus? Yes. Yes, I do. Mm -hmm. In my locker when I was working, I always took my Bible with me. Well, I'm still working, make that clear. When I was working a secular job, because I was 29, almost 30 years old when I went in ministry full-time, and I'm putting my Bible up there, and that became the object for a short season of some of my co-workers in the postal service lampooning me and saying stuff. You read that book? I said, yeah, that's why I put it in my locker. What'd you think? Yeah, I read it. And I didn't do it to show off. That's just what I do. I used to take out, my lunch was this big, and my Bible was over there, and I put it up there, and people would see me. Or I would take it back out, and I did that for years. I had two lockers on two separate jobs. I just put my Bible in there and would raise questions. Because why should I be ashamed of Jesus? Can you give me a good reason? Can you give me a good reason to be ashamed of Jesus? There is no good reason if you truly know him. And I'm not saying go make a show of it. This is a large print Bible, so it's a fairly good Bible. I have one even bigger, believe it or not, because the print. And you don't have to go around with a huge Bible to say, guess who's here? <laughs> I'm just simply saying don't be ashamed. Yeah. Put it where you want. Listen, be smart. Be wise. They're already talking about you. They're going to talk behind your back anyway. My wife had one woman got saved because my wife had an open Bible on her desk when she was an executive secretary years ago. They talked about my wife, you know, behind her back, the girls. You know, you know how women are. And um, <laughs> men don't do it, but you know women, you know. And finally, this woman came and said to my wife, she said, that Bible, and what was it, like your psychiatrist? And my wife said, yeah, it is. And she started explaining to her the gospel. When we got saved, came in our church when we were back in New York City, back in the box. Only because she had a Bible open for herself. Don't be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're the real deal, they're going to come to see you, not only to see Jesus. Now, here's verse 10. Here's the caveat. But the chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death. Uh-oh. <laughs> I want to be with Jesus. I want to walk on water. I want to do these miracles. I want to do this. God told me to tell you all this crazy stuff. All this stuff. But then when they're out to get you, it's like, hey, what do you bother me for? You see, Satan hates God. And you look like God. Well, not exactly like God, but you're made in his image. So therefore, Satan hates you. And Satan will fill people who are either unaware, unsaved, whatever. And so they hate you. Because you love God, and God loves you, and you look like him. You understand what I mean? You exactly. Most of you don't nearly resemble God. <laughs> you understand what I mean. You understand what I'm saying. It's like your kids. I mean, you're always trying to figure out who they look like. You know, so there goes that debate. Me, I, like, I think he looks like the mother and the father. Because to me, that's the best way out. Who does he look like? Oh, he looks like the mother and the father. Depending on how the light strikes him. But think of it from Satan's point of view. He hates you. So this is why we're having some of these strange and unusual things happen in our personal lives. Because Satan hates God. And since now we are the sons of God, he hates us. But we study this Wednesday, and we're in 1 John chapter 2. And he says, but you have overcome the wicked one. Twice it said in that chapter, you have overcome the wicked one. You have overcome the wicked one. So let's not go around glorifying Satan. We're all having difficult times, right? We're all having challenges. Some of us more than others, but we're all having challenges. But let's not glorify them. 
Let's remember, we were designed and commanded to overcome. This is not like, see how you do. Jesus didn't say, see how you do. Get in the fight and see how you do. He said, win it. Read it. Read it in Revelation, chapter 2, chapter 3. Every church, overcome, 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 overcome. Seven times to every church, overcome. You're going to go in there, you're going to win, and you got to be there in that mindset. If they hated Jesus, they're going to hate you. I mean the real Jesus, the biblical Jesus, the one that said some very difficult things. And if you repeat them, they'll say things like this to you, as they say to me. You really believe that? And what I say is, yeah, I really believe that. You know, my phrase is this, and I think it's a good one. You can borrow it for a while. I didn't write the Bible. Just tell people, I didn't write this. I didn't write this, but I do agree with it. You're announcing that I didn't write these words, but this is what Jesus said. The apostles said, the prophets said, this is what they said. And now the onus is on them, between them and God. Look at verse 11. Lazarus' testimony was so powerful that because by reason of him, many of the Jews went away and believed on Jesus from Lazarus. When you are gone, how many people will be following you or even went before you because you led them to Christ? Hmm? I mean, I don't think you have a number you're keeping, but and I get a lot of low points of discouragement, lots and lots of times. Lots of times, just like everybody else, they think about, well, I don't want to do this anymore. or We want to quit or hide or compromise it. I can't do it. I won't do it. And I was sitting down. I had a very, very low point. And I was just thinking, like, look, all this effort and energy into studying, into prayer, and this and to that, and what's the results? And uh, the phone rang, or one of my kids handed it to me. He says, Dad's for you. I'm not in a real great mood to begin with. And I says, hi, Pastor Ray. I said, yes. Guess who this is? <laughs> you ever had one of them days? It's like... Oh, man. I started off polite. Um, I said, no, I don't know. Well, come on, guess. <laughs> I said, no, I, I'm not sure. I, I really don't know. Then he proceeded to tell me this. Now, remember, this is a very low period of my life. A period of time. It was long ago. I've had many more since. He says, you know, I was in, I was in prison ministry for seven years. I was in one of your meetings when you came there, and I received Christ. And I just felt like I should call you and let you know that it was 10 years ago today that I received Christ and I've been serving Christ ever since based on your preaching and your teaching. And you know what that did to my discouragement? Wiped it all away. So I was saying to God, you know, hey, what, what in all this time and all this effort and what's the result? And God says, you leave the results to me. You stop looking with your eyes. You don't be concerned about who's coming and who's going. Don't get me wrong. I want people to come, and I do concern myself. But you know what? They go, they go. Because God has told me many times, get your eyes off that. Trust me for the results. Because I have no clue, and you'll have no clue, of actually people who came to Christ through your testimony, like Lazarus, even though they'd be hunting for your life. Not the people who follow Christ, but the others. And Satan. But God has a way of insisting that we walk by faith and not by sight. I can do myself, what would I say? It's not a service. Well, it's a service. It wouldn't just be something that was good. To continue to devise ways to get people to come in and build it around my own personality. And most people wouldn't know when they're in some of these places. Now, that church is actually built around personality, not around Christ. I refuse to do it. I'm not going to do it. This is the word of God. Amen. God will use you and your story and your testimony. You say, well, I don't know much about the Bible. Tell them what you know. 
Nobody knows everything about the Bible. No one. And so tell them what you know and tell them and give them the opportunity. Because this little story I'm telling you is what it's all about. I don't remember meeting this man who's in a room with a couple, 300 people in a prison gymnasium where we were holding our meetings. He said, accepted Christ that night at an altar call that had 80, 90, 100 people. I don't remember him. But the Lord led him to call me on that day when I was so low. And basically saying, now do you understand that you're bearing fruit in your ministry? Just keep on going forward. Stop looking at the results. Stop looking at the people and all that. And just keep going forward. Just keep doing what you're doing. That's the message to you today because Jesus is coming soon. You say, oh, well, and you have all these different things. Jesus is coming soon. And you won't be giving a report to me. You'll be giving a report to him. When Jesus says, what did you do with your life? When you look into his eyes, you understand the principle of, well, it's the principle of the streets. It's this principle of polite talking. I despise talking to people who are looking over my shoulder while they're talking to me. So often I make that conversation real short. Yeah, how you doing? He's looking over here. I said, is there something behind me that I don't know about? I like someone who just, hey, hey, how you doing? You know, but you're going to look Jesus straight in the eye. Not me. Who knows where I'll be? I could be way in the back. But you look Jesus straight in the eye. He's going to say, what did you do with your life? And he's coming soon. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Verse 15. Behold, thy king cometh. We see our signs. We see them everywhere. And they are increasing everywhere. What did you do with your life? Don't waste it. And don't be the so-called religious person. That's not a bad word. It's not a bad phrase, really. But we use it as a bad thing. I went to church every week. Pharisees did a lot more than you did. And Jesus said, you're never going to see heaven. Because they're hypocrites. Let me finish with this story that many of you are familiar with. There's a question that I want you to think about as we pray. Alison Wonderwine. Well, she meets a lot of interesting characters, but she comes upon this caterpillar. And he looks at her and he says, who are you? And Alice's response is that she says, well, I don't really know. I knew who I was this morning when I woke up, but I must have gone through several changes since then. He keeps asking her, who are you? In this age, concerning the gospel, who are you? Well, I knew what I was 10 years, five years, six months, one year. I knew who I was then. I scroll through pictures on my phone like you do, looking for something. I come across all these memories. I see all these people I water baptized. It's a lot of them. And I say to myself, where are they now? Some I actually know where they are, and it's not good. Who are you? Be what God designed you to be. There's not much time left. Give it all you got. Father God, when we come to look you straight in the eye, Jesus, I should say, when we come to look you straight in the eye, maybe in some manner of speaking, that's the question you're going to say. Who are you? Well, we know that's written in one place in the scripture. Who are you? Let that not be those who are watching by way of the live stream or listening by way of the radio. Let them not ever have to be asked the question when they meet you. Who are you? I never knew you. But rather, help us all to be able to have that accolade. However you do it, I don't know that you shake hands or you hug or whatever you do, God, Jesus. But let it be said to everybody here today, well done. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Well done. And we didn't quit when the heat was on. We didn't quit when people belly flopped or did a Judas on us or other things. But we stayed faithful right to the very, very end. Oh, Lord, pray today on this Palm Sunday that we would be able to say when we see you coming in the clouds, if that's the case. 
Hosanna, save now. And on that day, you will. You will. Hosanna, save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. With our heads and hearts bowed, let's make a resolve to resign. We do this from time to time. Not resign, resign ourselves to Jesus. With what you've heard, you already have enough information to go on. Resign yourself to serve him until the very end. Take away the idols that are in your heart. Put your knife through them. Don't compromise. And stop making excuses. God's grace covers everything. Literally everything. Father, we put whatever idols may be in our heart that are crowding out you. And say, forgive us, Lord. Forgive us for the compromises and times that we've walked away. Slowed down. God, pour out your spirit. Pour out that anointing. Let us not be like Martha, who's just doing things, doing things, doing things, saying, oh, I'm doing it for Jesus. When Jesus is saying, stop, slow down and listen to me. This is what I want you to do. Help us, God, to be like Lazarus, even like Mary and others, to be found, especially like you at the end of our life, to say, Father, I finished the work you gave me to do. While everybody else says, do this and do this, and you should be doing that and do this. Help us, God, at the end of our life to say, Father, I finished the work you gave me to do. We bless you, Father, and we praise you. From the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, the Lord's name is to be praised. So, Father, cause us to be reminded continually this week that we are to love you with all of the heart, all of the soul, all of the mind, and all of the strength. Remind us to love one another. Bless the fellowship dinner, the agape fellowship we have downstairs. Let there be both love and laughter and encouragement as we share this meal together. And all of this we pray today in Jesus' name. Can you say with me, amen? Amen. Amen. amen.